All right, folks, come on in, come on down. Don't stay too far in the back. We won't bite. You won't get called on. Back row Baptists. We don't need any of those around here, unless you just have to sit in the back row. Uh, yeah, you said you came a little too close, Stephen. I could see where Rachel was like, I'm all for sitting up front, but I mean, the second row, I've been overruled by my wife many times, brother. That, that scene just played itself out a hundred times in my life. All right, well, good to see everybody. It is uh, Wednesday night, April 12th. And as I was saying, as some of you were walking in, our intention was to end this particular block in our study of James this week, but we got. Um, uh, I was going to say we you know, weather cancellation, but it was actually a beautiful evening last Wednesday. But again, praise God um, for, for, uh, for his protection. I know there were some people outside of Columbus who were affected by the tornadoes, but we will go next week. So we're going to continue on and do James 5 next week, and then we'll, we'll, we will take a pause on our midweek fellowship, and we'll pick it back up and do a block in the summer. So we got this week and next week. Um, as you're finding James 4, let me mention a couple things, is that uh, it... it it seems like it's been a while, uh, but two weeks ago, uh, Joseph Davis taught on James chapter 3, and if you were not here, that was just excellently done by Joseph, and it's on the website. I'm sure you can find it. He did a fantastic job, so I'd highly commend Joseph's teaching on James chapter 3. Um, and then two other things I want to mention that we want to pray about before we dive into James 4 is that... Uh, you know, Robert Ward was here this Sunday uh, at church, and Sigourney was up in the hospital with Sarah Joy. If you're, if you're newer to the church, you're just visiting tonight. Robert Ward is one of our pastors at the church, and he and his wife uh, had their second child in November, and uh, little Sarah Joy, and she's had some breathing problems and has had to have several surgeries. And the surgeries are essentially to extend her jaw a little bit to open up her airway. And so that surgery happened, the second rendition of that surgery happened earlier this week. It seems to be going well. So Robert is back up in Atlanta with Sigourney. Uh, you can pray for a sleep study uh, that Sarah Joy is going to have. And this sleep study is kind of monitoring how well she's breathing. That will happen a Thursday night through the night. Uh, and then Friday, the pulmonologist will determine will read the results of the sleep study, and that will be really, really important because depending on you know, how, how much her breathing is improved is, is going to be the deciding factor as to whether or not she has another surgery right after that, which would be much more invasive, which would be a, trach, a, a trachezi, a trach, not a trachotomy, but a trachezi, something where I'm, I'm, you, she would actually it'd be very invasive. They'd go in her throat and open up an airway, and that wouldn't be permanent but for the next you know, year or so, that would be uh, challenging to care for. So we're praying that that does not happen. And so to that end, we're hoping that the sleep study went well. So please, please pray for little Sarah Joy. Um, and then secondly, Paul and Becca Fincher, Paul is another one of our pastors. They, uh, praise God, two weekends ago, uh, uh, yeah, it was two weekends ago, got a call from, they've been adopt, wanting to adopt a child, and Saturday night they got a call about a child in the nation of Texas. And so, so it's kind of like a domestic adoption, but it's sort of, you know, sort of like foreign to, it's kind of a weird little deal. Um, but they, yeah, some Texan natives over there. Um, so they flew out after church two Sundays ago, a week and a half ago. Sunday night, they met their daughter who was born that previous day, and they have little Betsy, and uh, they have to stay in Texas for another you know, a few days, maybe to into this week. So they probably won't be back this weekend. Everything seems to be going well. You just pray for that process. You know, there's lots of uh, paperwork that needs to be done, lots of logistics. And then I believe that the father of the biological father of the child has like a 30-day period. Is that right, Kristen? You're nodding your head. And that started at birth. And so they will bring the baby back to the United States. They'll come to Georgia. And then, um, then that's for you Texans. And then, um, but that time period will still be going. So um, just pray. That can, that, obviously, you can understand these 30 days are, you know, wonderful but anxious time. So um, child will, I asked Paul, I asked Paul, and I think, that, I think that's why they have to stay in Texas so long because, um, yeah, I was going to make a joke about Texas and you guys had to, like, make the passport out of rock or something like that. But anyway... <laughs> All right, well, let's pray for these things and pray for our time in James chapter 4. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us, for 
giving us life and breath and your Holy Spirit that is, is hovering over the face of the earth in the first chapter of Genesis has, has breathed life into our hearts and minds. For those of us that are trusting in Jesus, you, by your Holy Spirit, have made us alive and the Spirit has given us eyes to see and a new heart to behold the beauty of your Son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again and reigned supreme over all things. He reigned supreme over weather and tornadoes and and he protected our city last week. You protected our city last week. We thank you for that. He, you wrote your word that illuminates the work of your son and is quickened to our minds by your spirit that we can open tonight freely. And we thank you for that. And we, as we do it in such comfort, comfort this evening, we think of our brothers and sisters around the world who are under severe threat of persecution, the, Christians in Egypt whose church was bombed and many were killed, we pray for grace to them tonight. I'm sure that Easter Sunday will be a great threat to the church and the persecuted world. We pray for safety. But we pray for little Sarah Joy Ward and we pray for grace as the physicians do the sleep studies Thursday night. We pray for good news. We pray that she would be able to come home soon and that she would not have to have this more invasive procedure. But whatever the case, Lord, we know that you are good. Nothing surprises you. But you're a, you're a good father who tells your children that we can ask for bread and that you will not give us a rock. We know that doesn't guarantee answers to prayer, but it does mean that we can come boldly to our father and plead with you our cause. And we pray for Sarah Joy. We pray for Robert and Sigourney that you would encourage them and give them endurance, that you'd give them good rest in the hospital. We pray for Paul and Becca and their precious little baby daughter, Betsy, and we pray that everything would go well administratively and logistically with the paperwork, and we pray for this. It certainly seems to us, Lord, that it would be wonderful for Betsy to be adopted into this family and it to be finalized. So to that end, as much as we can know, we pray that this biological father would, would not um, exert his rights and that Betsy would stay with the Finchers. And again, Lord, we know that you're sovereign, and we pray, as, as much as we know to pray now, that this child would come and live with the Finchers and be their daughter. And Lord, we thank you for the, the ways that you're moving in our church, and we, we pray tonight as we get into this word in James 4. It's a lengthy chapter. There's so much we can just really skim over the surface of the waters, but I pray that Again, your Holy Spirit would dig deeper, root into our hearts and root out sin and, and encourage us, convict us, exhort us, comfort us, and do your work among us tonight, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> if you remember, it's been a couple weeks. James is a, 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 a very unique New Testament letter in that it is uh, it's very, it's very exhortive. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and James really is, is taking much of Jesus' instruction in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's just kind of applying it to the Christian life. And so it's, in a sense, and, and hear what I'm saying on this, all the Bible is theological, right? But James is not as theological in the sense that it doesn't develop or, or, or spend a lot of time uh, developing doctrines of the Bible, it's assuming a lot of that, and it's really going at applying the Christian life practical ways to everyday believers, and in particular, it's a letter that was meant to be circulated amongst churches at the time. It, so it's, it's a kind of um, utilitarian letter in that sense, that it's not written to a specific people or a specific church, like lots of Paul's letters were. It's not written to a specific situation. It was a letter that was really intended to be um, to be to be taken around to the churches, all of the Christians that were dispersed uh, in the area at the time. So it has a certain utilitarian nature to it, a practicality to it, and it has a sharpness to it as well. One of the things that James is concerned about is that the faith that we read about in the New Testament so often, especially through Paul's letters, the faith that is a sovereign gift of God. And if you're around Crosspoint at all, you know that we hold firmly to this doctrine of the sovereign grace of God that he must give us 
what we need to stand before him, which is a new heart and the gift of faith, which we then exercise in him. And it's not something that we bring to the table. It's something that God gives us by his grace. But this faith must then result in some measure of works, of fruit. It must bear itself out in the Christian life. And so James is very concerned about people, what we might call today, like nominal Christians, which again, we live in uh, the Bible belt of the United States where this is very familiar to us. People that sort of think that they're Christians just because they maybe prayed a prayer or, you know, went to a children's ministry event or VBS long ago or were baptized or whatever, and they think that they're right with God just because they're part of a Christian culture. And James is really attacking that nominalism, not only in his day, but also in our day. And he's saying that, that faith that doesn't produce a Christian lifestyle that, that, that honors Christ to some degree, again, we're not saying that you know, people don't still struggle with sin, but he's saying that that's not true faith. And he's also very concerned with divisions in the church, in particular, uh, I, I think, class divisions between rich people and poor people and showing favoritism. And that's one thing that he really zeroes in on, and we're going to see a little bit of that in James chapter 4 as well. So let's just break it down. We're going we're to fly a little bit, so there's so much more here, but um, we're just going to go into it. So let's just read, I'll read the first three verses, and we'll stop along the way and, um, and, and comment. He says in verse 1 of James 4, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. Okay, I'm going to stop there in those three verses, and if I could just sort of give a little subheading to these three verses, I would say that what James is describing to us here in verses 1 through 3 is the result of disordered affections, the result of a sin-sick heart. And you know what's interesting about these first three verses is that um, he's speaking about how there's disunity in the church, how there's selfishness and envy in the church, and it's coming from selfish hearts that are not desiring what God wants them to desire and instead being selfish and really hoarding or you know, out for themselves, and that's causing all sorts of fractions in the church, which we can understand. But the interesting thing about it is in verse 2, the second half of verse 2, it, there's this little phrase that maybe you've heard, it's quoted often, you have not because you ask not. Ironically enough, this is one of those verses that is actually thrown out there that's very popular in the kind of the so-called prosperity gospel, which is really no gospel at all movement or the health and wealth sort of stream of the church. And this verse is used as a kind of, almost like a kind of rabbit's foot, bad theology that like, well, you have not because you haven't really, you haven't like confessed, you haven't, and actually that mentality that you have not because you asked not without the context of James 1 through 3 is actually people that sort of believe that, that we just don't have stuff because we don't ask, just sort of by the power of positive confession, are actually exhibiting the very sort of self-centeredness that the context of verses 1 through 3 is that James is attacking. Now, here's the deal, though, as I thought about it. I don't think many of us at Crosspoint, although some of us may be, are prone to, you know, being vulnerable to the prosperity gospel. Again, I don't even like to use those two words together because the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. It's a false gospel. It's promulgated on the airways, TBN. Vast majority of the people that you see preaching on that network are just charlatans. And you know, the sad thing about it, every time I travel, like when I go to Uganda or India, like the, the number one export of America is false teaching false Christian teaching. And you see all of these earnest, sincere Christians in India and Uganda being vulnerable to this teaching of all these people on TV that are just selling garbage for the sake of their own, you know, riches. And it's enough to make you disqualify yourself with bad language. That's what it is. It's, it's enough. It's enough. It's enough to make me get in touch with my 
Italian heritage. Okay. But we may not be vulnerable to the prosperity gospel, but I think we're all kind of vulnerable to a sort of soft prosperity gospel, a kind of pragmatism. And I think that we need to realize that we really are in view in what James is saying here when, when we have these, when any time we make God and coming to God in prayer as the means to an end. In other words, I, I, want, I want this and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to God so that I can get this. Certainly he's a good father and we should come to him and he supplies our needs and all of that. I'm, clearly that is true. But, but we are all vulnerable to a kind of soft pragmatism, a soft, a soft prosperity gospel, a soft, subtle selfishness where we too just covet and we want and we lust after things and it causes us to be jealous of one another. And the language in verse 1 is very stark. It says that our passions are at war within us because we've really turned our relationship with the Lord into a kind of almost a spiritual ATM machine. Um, John Calvin, the great reformer, and I want to give a little tip of the cap to Joseph Davis for, I have this commentary, but I'd never read it before, and he borrowed it, and he said, man, Calvin on James is awesome. And so I started reading it, and I'm like, you're right, man, John Calvin, he's actually a pretty smart guy. Actually, I knew that. But this is what Calvin says about critiquing this insatiable desire that we have that's in view here in 1 through 3. Calvin says, God, indeed, whom they owned not as the author of blessings, justly disappoints them. So Calvin is speaking about the people that are in view here in verses 1 through 3, and sometimes that's us, right? Think about that, that God disappoints us. He's not enough, so we have to want all these other things in life, whatever it is. You know, I want, I want this or that, and so I, I lust for these things. They sought to be happy, but not through God. It was therefore no wonder that they were frustrated in their efforts since no success can be expected except through the blessing of God alone. And boy, I was convicted by Calvin's first sentence there that there are times through these people that are just disappointed with God because God's not enough for them, you know. Whatever it is, it's maybe, yeah, it's, it's the Christian life plus getting married. It's the Christian life plus children. Christian life plus getting a job. Christian life plus you know, having a successful church plant. Uh, I can remember just feeling the idols of my own heart when we planted Crosspoint 12 years ago and thinking, you know, when we, if we could just get 100 people, that would be great. If we could just have our own building. And there's, no, there's, no, there's no, nothing wrong with godly ambition, but how quickly that can turn and it just, we're just never satisfied. Our desires are insatiable when they're not centered on the Lord. Um, I was watching this Fox News report recently about how programmers in Silicon Valley that make little apps for your phone, like Instagram and Facebook, that this one guy is like whistleblowing the industry and he's saying, man, they are just rigging, they're just setting us up to be like Pavlov's dogs. And that there are actually people that are paid lots and lots and lots of money that write these codes and algorithms for apps that monitor consumer behavior, things that we browse on the internet, when we're on our phones and all that kind of stuff. And, and there, are, there are things within these apps like Instagram and Facebook that will, will cluster, like if you post something, Facebook and Instagram have determined when the time is of the day that you're most likely to look when it's going to produce something in you, some dopamine sort of high and it will cluster it will withhold some likes on your status so that it can bundle them so that you'll just be so excited which is then they've figured out is going to make you more likely to get some advertising or whatever and which makes them able to and so it's just it's like we are like we're little lab rats and they're just feeding us crack and what and if we think and by the way, that's all of us. That's all of us, right? I was having lunch with Drew Nelson today, and I, would, I heard this report, and I'm like, man, Drew, and Drew's like, you know, he's like a millennial young guy that knows all that. He goes, yeah, you didn't know this stuff? Like, of course. This is, this is, and I'm like, can you believe they're doing this to us? And he's like, easy, killer. Like, yeah, this is, but if you think, if we think that this does not have an effect on just our hearts and how we desire anything, 
You know? It, it, I, I think we're just being naive. I think we're, I think we're being naive. The, the world is programming us to be, have an insatiable desire for whatever. And God doesn't work that way. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't drug us with dopamine to, to make us like Pavlov's dogs. The Christian life is one of waiting. Read the Psalms. I mean, how long? Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And the world is programmed to not make us wait, and it never satisfies. God makes us wait, and only he can satisfy. Isn't that kind of a paradox in, in, in so many ways? So, so how do we fight this? Um, well, I mean, we could, we could talk forever about this. I think just being part of a biblical community, confession, repentance, you know, maybe putting parameters on, on uh, triggers in our life that we know are going to make us want more, more, more. I, I, I have noticed a trigger in my life that makes me just lust and kind of for stuff and get kind of angry is HGTV. Because everybody else's house is awesome, but mine. And Chip Gaines can just do stuff, and I can't do stuff like him. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And it just, it just it's kind of like exciting, but depressing all at the same time. You know what I mean? You're like, you want to see it, but you're like secretly angry. angry. And everybody's kids are cute, and I'm, I'm touching a nerve here. Okay, I'm going to move on. <laughs> Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about, about just our, how, how easily lured we are. This is what he says. And you've probably heard this quote before. I've read it before. It comes from a book by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. He says, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is in no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And oh, I thought, boy, Lewis was right on what I think James is express, expressing here. We just, our, our counterfeit desires are far too easily pleased and it causes us to lust after everything in this world and it makes us angry. We're at war. We're angry at each other. It causes dissension. When there's, when there's just, there's, God is better. Like God is better. And, and I want that to ring in my heart. Okay, let's keep reading. Um, verses four and five. So he, 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 he throws down the hammer here in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. That's a severe word. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity meaning a word meaning at odds with. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Okay, verse 5, we're going to stop there. Verse 5 is notoriously complicated and tricky. We're going to get to that in a second. But let's look at verse 4. I think if I could subtitle just these two, two verses, James is warning us in light of these passions that we have to reorder in our walk with Christ as they're disordered. James is warning us, and he's being very poignant here when he calls us adulterous. He's saying, don't cheat on God. And this, this word adultery is very provocative, and, and the scriptures are full of, of, of um, analogies of God's people, especially in the Old Testament, Israel being like a wife to the Lord. The Lord is the husband, spiritually speaking, to his people, and and. And James is saying here that when we lust after this world, that we are committing spiritual adultery 
with, against God with the world. Now, I think we need to understand what James means by the world here because, you know, we sing a song here pretty regularly that says, Jesus, friend of sinners. So I don't think he's saying that we should cut off our relationship with the world. So what does he mean by the world in this sense? Well, this word world in the original language is the word cosmos, and it, we get sort of several uh, um, uh, definitions or several contexts that this word is used in the New Testament. Sometimes it means just all of creation. That's kind of what we tend to think of it, you know, cosmos, the everything, the universe. Sometimes the word means this, literally this planet, earth. Sometimes it means all humanity, people. But here, I think James is using another sense, and, and one uh, lexicon or dictionary of the New Testament defines this Greek word, I think this is very helpful, as the system of practices and standards associated with secular society. That is, without reference to any demands or requirements of God. So in other words, it's this, you might think of it as this fallen culture that, like it says in 1 John 5, 19, I don't, we don't have it up on the screen, but it says that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one or the devil. So it's this broken culture that we live in. And Paul, or James is saying, don't commit adultery with this fallen culture against God. I think that's the, the clear point of, of James chapter uh, 4, verse 4. Just a couple of verses to help us kind of equip ourselves to, I think these would be great verses to memorize. Galatians 6, verse 14. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so Paul is painting the Christian life as, as one where we've been radically crucified to this world in the sense that we are no longer, like, we're not, we're not, we're not a slave anymore. In fact, when we get to Romans 6 on Sundays in, in, in a while, it's going to might be a little while, Romans 6 is this picture of we are no longer enslaved by our sin nature. We are now enslaved by Christ. So there's this drastic picture of what salvation, we've been delivered we have a new master. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. And this is one of Reynolds' favorite verses. I've heard him quote it many times over the years. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, who among us can navigate through living appropriately as a Christian with possessions and having godly ambition... And knowing what is a right and noble and godly pursuit of life and maybe things and what is, what is in view here in 1 John 2, who among us can do that on our own, right? Who can say, okay, I can clearly discern what is righteous for me to pursue in this world? Because I don't think John here in 1 John 2 is saying, don't have a job, don't have a wife, don't have a, a husband, don't have friends. Just go out in the desert and, you know, wear um, a, a camel's coat and eat, uh, you know, locusts and honey. I don't think that's what he's calling us to. But who among us can discern what the proper biblical Christ-like pursuit and balance is? None of us is the answer. It's a rhetorical question. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to exhort one another and rebuke one another and have hard conversations with one another. We could go on forever on that. Okay, let me handle verse 5 because verse 5 is tricky before we keep going. Let me read it again. He says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Spirit says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Okay, two issues. One, James says that the Scripture says this, but there's actually nowhere in Scripture where it says exactly that. And so this has kind of troubled people in the history of the church. Um, and it's caused people to think about just the doctrine of inspiration and the, the uh, inspiration of and authentic, authenticity of, and, and canonicity of James as one little issue in there. Um, I, I think what's going on here is that James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is summarizing biblical teaching 
and he's saying this is what scripture says. So he's kind of speaking sort of like a, a preacher might speak, you know, like, like the Bible says, you know, and he's, he's, he, he's not saying, he's saying something that's very true, but he's not directly quoting an Old Testament passage. The second issue with this verse is that there's much dispute as to exactly what James is saying, like who the object is here. Is he saying that he, meaning God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So in other words, God is possessive about his people, and so we shouldn't lust after these things. That's one way of looking at it. And that's certainly true. Like the Bible talks about, in other places, about God, you know, wanting us and having complete authority over us. Or, and I think this is probably the better interpretation, but it's not the way we would instinctively read it, is it saying that he, meaning mankind, yearns, another translation, lusts jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. In other words, we're lusting inwardly over our own stuff that we want. And actually, so do you see what's happening there? Those, are, those verses are kind of saying sort of two totally different things. One, it's God who's jealously wanting to possess all of us. That's true. Other interpreters would say, no, what's going on here is this is actually in the context, the person who's being jealous and lusting here, that's another way of interpreting that word jealousy, in the context of what's going on here, it's mankind who's lusting. And so this verse is just carrying on the thought pattern of verses one through four, that mankind is lusting after all of this stuff and God's made this spirit and he's just, mankind is all jacked up. I actually think that's probably the better interpretation, but here's the point. Both of those things are true, right? So you don't need to lose any sleep about it. And if you want to have any conversations about it afterwards, we can. Just wanted to point that out to you because it's Wednesday night, right? And we get a little deeper. Okay. So verses four through five, um, uh, I think Paul is taking aim at uh, the issue he brought up in verses 1 through 3. Let's go to verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. All right, these uh, five verses here, 6 through 10, are are just really some of the high points of James. And and many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with these verses. These might be verses that would just be helpful to you to memorize. Just really, really good verses verses to quote to yourself as you're battling with sin, wrestling with just your sanctification. And if I had to subtitle these five verses, I think I would say that what James is saying is that sanctification is two-handed. Sanctification is synergistic, two-handed, okay? So let me kind of get a little doctrinal and theological on you here in a second, for, for a moment. Salvation, the moment of conversion that we are made alive by God, the moment that we're saved, salvation is one-handed. It's a one-handed event. By that, it's God that does it, right? So the theological term is, it's monergistic. So if you speak Spanish, mono, the hand, monergistic. It's one hand. God is doing the saving. And that's important for you to, to realize. Even though experientially, we feel like we're coming to God and we're putting our faith in God. But when we put our faith in God at the moment of our conversion, something has already happened to us before that. He has made us alive given our dead heart's life, and given us the gift of faith so that we can put our faith in God. So even though experientially salvation, 
the beginning of the Christian life, feels like something that we initiate, that move on our part is just a consequence of the prior move on God's part. Do you see that? And so salvation, I think this is important for us for the sake of worship, for the sake of humility, for the sake of understanding the Bible rightly, is that salvation is one-handed. It's God reaching down to people who are dead in their sins, and as Colossians 2 and Ephesians 2 says, making them alive. That's salvation. Praise God. That's, that's Lazarus coming up from the grave in John 11. You are dead. Now you're alive. It's Lazarus. Get up. After salvation is then the process of sanctification. It's the Christian life that begins immediately after salvation. And in one sense, the Bible even speaks about our sanctification as past tense. We are sanctified. But in much of the Bible, it also speaks of it as a process. And that sanctification, that aspect of the Christian life is two-handed. It's synergistic. It's two hands. It's us and God. So salvation, conversion, regeneration, God, one hand. Sanctification, two hands. And I'm saying all this to say that this is, I think, the point, the, really the underlying Really, one of the main, one or two things that James wants to say in his whole letter is that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's God who's working in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. I'm just, that's quoting Philippians chapter 2. That we must do something. We must submit, that's active there, submit ourselves to God. And then we must resist the devil And he will flee from you. And this word resist in the original language is, it means to oppose by actively opposing. Actively opposing. Um, I grew up in a stream of the church that was very earnest and very sincere. And uh, actually, I didn't grow up in that. I grew up in a like totally dead, dying, no gospel having mainline denomination where I never heard the gospel. When I was 18, my brother witnessed to me, I came to faith, and it was in a theological environment that was earnest and sincere and God-fearing and fruitful in many ways, but I think they had some theological unhealth. And one of the, the, the mantras of that particular stream of Christianity that I was in at that time was this phrase, just, you might even be able to say it with me, just let go and let God, right? And doesn't that sound spiritual? Except James 4, 6 through 10 is, is saying, actually, yeah, it's saying, get after it, man. It's saying, understand what God has done in your salvation, and now you submit yourselves to God and resist the devil, draw near to God, humble yourselves. So there's this activity that he is calling us to, we're supposed to, to apply ourselves to our sanctification, and it comes from God. It's not something that we bring to the table. It's important for us to understanding, understand that the, the energy, the, the passion that we get for sanctification is not something that we first bring to the table, but it's the result of the true conversion of a Christian. That's one of James' point, that true faith, true saving faith, will produce in us some measure of God pursuit in our lives. Calvin, again, listen to what, listen to what our boy uh, John Calvin says on this point. He says that if anyone concludes from this passage, speaking of James 4, 6 through 10, that the first part of the work belongs to us and that afterwards the grace of God follows, the apostle meant no such thing. In other words, Calvin is saying that if we think that this means that we've got to do the work and then God will meet us halfway and he will be pleased with us and then, you know, save us and we'll go on our merry way. No, no. The apostle meant no such thing. For though we ought to do this, yet it does immediately follow that we can. In other words, it, it, that the, the ability that we ought to do it means that we can. And where did that can came from? It came from God. Next sentence, and the Spirit of God, in exhorting us to our duty, derogates or gives up nothing from himself or from his power, but the very thing, this is the, this is the sentence here, the very thing he bids us to do, 
he himself fulfills in us. And so let that be like fuel for our sanctification. Do you see the synergism of sanctification? Salvation, conversion, regeneration is one-headed. It's God doing it. And then our sanctification, our ability to submit to sin, to, to, um, to submit to God, to resist sin, is a cooperative effort between us and God. And God gives us the ability to do that. So what, should that, that, what effect should that have on us biblically? Not that we let go and let God, but it should motivate us because we know that our God is sure and steadfast and certain. And he has promised that he who began a good work in us will carry it through to completion. I just think that should produce motivation for us as we, as we fight sin. And we've got, we're, and again, who can do this by themselves? And who can do this in a church culture that isn't a place where it's okay to not be okay? It, you just can't, you can't do it. This is what Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. This is, this is, Jesus calling us to war against our own flesh. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I don't think that Jesus is literally calling us to maim ourselves. But he's calling us to a radical a radical war against the sin that remains in us, which is called sanctification. The process of dealing with that is called sanctification. And God has given us means of grace for this. He's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit that dwells in us. He's given us community. He's given us the ability to gather together. He's given us the ability to serve one another. And in fact, I would say, I, I, I think that let me, let me link together, and this is not just some subliminal serve the church and children's ministry announcement, but let me just link together two things that I, I, I think I have observed in my own life and in the life of people as I've just pastored for the last decade or so, is that we tend to compartmentalize the Christian life and say, okay, this is where I'm fighting sin, you know, over here, and this is where I'm doing fellowship, and this is where I'm serving, you know, whether people or some particular ministry or the church. And I want to say that I actually think that all of it is part of the Christian life and sanctification. And God intends to have us resist the devil and submit to God, make war against our sin in the context of community, which serves our ability to do that. And then as we serve other people, as we obligate ourselves in Christian community and make ourselves accountable to them, then we now have to serve them. And the very spiritual discipline of us having to inconvenience ourselves because we're in community causes us what to do what? It causes us, at least for a moment, to get our eyes off of ourself, which slowly begins to detox ourselves from ourselves. And so all of it sort of works together to make a healthy, God-pursuing, sin-fighting Christian. Do, do, you, do you see that? It, so, the, so the moral of the story is, is I, I don't think you can fight sin on the edges of the Christian community without yoking yourself to the inconveniences of Christian community and serving the Christian community. So fight sin and sign up for children's ministry every fifth Sunday. No, but really, like really, be willing to be awkward with kind of strange people from your church in a community group. Everybody in my community is like, yeah, amen, I, I'm, yeah, I go to your house twice, every couple times a month, it's weird. But do you see that? Like there's something powerful about that I think that is just so undervalued. Yoking yourself to inconvenience is actually good for your soul and it helps you to fight sin because you, you're just like the programmers in Silicon Valley are training you to want that thing subliminally, 
you're actually training yourself to get your eyes off of yourself as you have to bear with other people who slow you down and make life inconvenient. And that's good for your soul. And this whole idea of yoke, you know what, the, like a yoke, think of two, uh, two big you know, farm animals, two big oxen, that they're, 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 they're pulling a plow to plow a field, and they have this wooden thing that they yoke, they put around their neck so that they are moving in unison so it would harness their their, their, you know, strength together so that they can pull the plow. But it's, it's uncomfortable to be yoked to another oxen if you're an ox because you're banging against this wood thing strapped around your neck. But it actually makes your work more fruitful. Do you, do you see that? And I think there's power in that in the Christian life. I just, I just, I think that's a key actually to, to our, our everyday sanctification. And I think probably what Americans, what we as Americans do is we compartmentalize everything and it actually, actually undercuts our ability to, to just apply the regular means of grace to the Christian life. Let me stop there. Any comments, questions, pushbacks, disagreements, anything? Anybody? I'm not going to belabor this point. Anybody have anything? Going once, going twice, just go. Cheska, come on. Yeah, give it to me, baby. We got a mic coming. Hey, hey! I'm not sure if I'm wording it right, or but I remember, I'm not either. I'm never sure if I'm wording it right. So you're in good but company. But I remember one of my first sermons here. You talked about being lost in the army and using a yeah. click to get back on track. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> at what point in the sanctification process do you say, okay, maybe I need to crank this clicks up a notch? Yeah. Versus staying on that same click and moving forward. Yeah. And I, I think that's where I'm kind of at now. Yeah. Where it's like maybe it's time to crank it up a little more and yeah. shoot back. Because I've realized being here that uh, if sin is kind of like symptoms, mm -hmm. if you're so far in the jungle, how do you kind of get back? And when do you know? Yeah. Amen. Brother, that's a super question, and I think it's really a question that I think every Christian should be asking all the time. Um, there's just lots of self-examinatory questions that are in the New Testament, you know, that, that are always, and so I, two things I would just say quickly is that, you know, there's no, there's no formula to answer your question. That's just not the way, the Christian life isn't like a, a combination lock, you know, 38 to the right, you know, 10 to the left. it's just it doesn't work that way. Um, so sort of relieve yourself from feeling like there's some magical eight ball out there that you're going to shake and it's going to say, here it is. I think though that you're really hitting on, you're, you're leading us into a point I'm wanting to make is that those types of, that perspective, that self-awareness is something that only really comes in the context of authentic, like true community. And every church struggles with this. And this church struggles with this. I mean, we've got pockets of, in this church where people are really, really digging in and doing life together and other people, it's, it's hard, it is hard, isn't it? And so I would say, like, one way you can ratchet up that click is not by being so self-analytical, but by giving yourself to, like, an older man in community and saying, hey, like, Come ask me questions about my marriage and what it, what it means to be father. And just, and that, that's not going to, again, that's not a magic eight ball, but that's going to be like you self-correcting. That's you submitting to God and resisting the devil in an incremental way. And so I, I think that God ordains community for those things to happen. Now, we as Americans are petrified of that type of community for some reason. But man, we've got like, we got to do it. So maybe Francisco's question is just a, a sort of a, an opportunity for all of us to be chastened that we just need to like try and do that better right we just need to try and do that better and that would be kind of my first my first sort of flush at trying to answer blush at trying to answer your question but that's a that's a great point brother i think we all need to be asking that question okay let's keep going so we can finish up here it's got about five minutes left um verse 11 Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judge... Wait, you know what? Let me back up. Verse, verse, verses, I meant to say this. Um, look at verses 9 and 10 again. He says, 
You know, like we're so used to being encouraged all the time that we just think that after the Bible busts our chops, that then the Holy Spirit is obligated to like whisper sweet nothings in our ear. But so he's been busting our chops. And then in verse 9, he says, but it's going to be okay. No, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And he's, he's, he's echoing something that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6. And I, I think... I think he's, again, he's trying to detox us from the shallowness of always needing to be comforted. It's the Holy Spirit kind of drilling down on us and saying, like, repent. And before you can move to to just being happy all the time, you've really got to feel the weight of repentance. And it reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that says there's a, there's a worldly repentance that produces death and there's a, a true biblical repentance that produces life. And, and we're so addicted to being happy all the time. In fact, it, it, it even informs church services in America. Everybody's got to be happy all the time. But the Bible's not always happy. There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations. <laughs> and it was songs. There's like a third of the Psalms are laments. Psalm 13 is a song. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Yeah, I mean, I think we, I think we, need, I think we need to feel that. And I think that's what James is. Okay, let me keep going. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? If I had to subtitle this section, I think James is saying, beware of making yourself the judge with your tongue. And he's using this analogy of just speaking. And when we, when we speak, we slander. And this is what Joseph handled so well in, in James chapter 3. And he's picking up a lot of that same language in James chapter 3. Remember about the, the analogies of the tongue and how we can start forest fires with our tongue. And Joseph took, made this analogy that was so helpful. He says, you know, don't be an arsonist with your tongue. Be somebody who, who, who tends crops, who harvests a, harvest of right, a crop of righteousness with your tongue. And again, James is getting to speech here that when we slander one another, we are really making ourselves the judge over somebody. And this, I think, is hearkening back to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so when we slander one another and judge one another unfairly, what we're doing is we, we are being obvious hypocrites. And this is one of the favorite verses of the world. Like any time the Christian church holds up any standard of righteousness, the, the world will say, well, you don't judge, don't judge. But to understand this rightly, we need to realize that the Bible actually does say that we should judge one another in, in, in certain contexts and situations. In fact, Galatians 2 verses 11 through 14, we won't take the time to read it, but it records this story where Paul judges Peter for his hypocrisy because he was eating before the Jews one way and then when the before the Gentiles one way and then when the Jews came into town he was like you know changing his habits so he was being hypocritical he was kind of being one thing with one group of people and another thing with another group of people and Paul called him out in a letter that became part of the Bible you just got your chops busted by the Holy Spirit for all time in the book (laughs) thanks Paul 
And so Paul is judging Peter in that sense. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, when he talks about church discipline, that if there's unrepentant sin in the context of the local church, that we're to increase the circles of of really pressure on a person to repent of that sin. And if they don't repent, they're to be put out of the church and to be treated like a tax collector and a Gentile. So what's the difference here? What is James talking about where he says, don't speak and be judges of one another, and what's, how does that mesh with what Jesus is saying here and what Paul did to Peter in Galatians 2 about how we, we actually should. I think the difference is, is that when we decide to make ourselves the judge, the one who determines the standard, then we become the slanderer. But when we are taking God's side, the word side, very humbly, against a brother or sister's actions for their good. We're, we're judging them, but we're doing that for their good. But what James is talking about here is us really taking our own selfish ambition side, forgetting what God's word says, and attacking a person. And he says when we do that, we make ourselves, we make ourselves the judge. Let me, just, let me just give one application here. A prayer that I heard early on in my Christian life that has just been so helpful. I heard this pastor say or preacher say one time that his prayer was that in the local church that his ears would be a graveyard for gossip. That his ears would be a place where slander goes to die. And that's not just a passive thing. I think that's an active thing. We're hearing slander or gossip in the context of the local church. I think the call of this text is to stand up and say, no, 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 we, we, we don't talk about one another that way. If we've got an issue, we go to a person. We go to a person. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Let me read verses 13 through 17, and then we'll be done. We don't have time to comment on it, but let me read it. In a lot of the ways, it's self-explanatory. It's such a, a, a beautiful text. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And if I had to subtitle this section, and we won't, we won't say much other than just this, that I think that James is calling us to a humility in the face of God's complete providence. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. So we should... Humble ourselves. Certainly we should plant. This is not saying don't save for your children's college or don't put away money. That's not what he's saying here. He's calling us to a humility. And really I think he's taking aim at the rich businessmen in the church, the rich people who were showing favoritism all the way back in James 1 and 2. And he's saying, who do you think you are? Tomorrow is not promised. Your life is a mist. Moses says in Psalm 90, I think it's verse 2, he says, Lord, teach us to number our days. And I think that's just a wonderful truth for us to end on. Lord, teach us to number our days. Make us humble, circumspect, uh, God-fearing people. Any final comments, questions from the floor? Anybody at all? Kristen will be taking children's ministry applications for you to help fight your sin, for those of you that are not signed up yet. Um, now, think about ways. I mean, I don't mean to be silly, but, that, but listen, if you're not part of a church, I think you need to be part of a church, um, whether it's this one or some other Bible-believing one, um, especially if you're a young person. Don't be um, duped into, like, don't denigrate the bride of Christ. You know, I, I know churches are jacked up. And churches can be hard places to be. But you know what? I was married December 17th, 1994, across the street, actually, at Evangel Temple, Jennifer's home church. And if when she was walking down the aisle 
somebody would have snickered and said, that dress isn't that pretty. Uh, <laughs> game on, right? We, I mean, I would have come over the pew, and me and my brother and everybody else, we'd have, we'd, we'd have, we'd have elbow to the head, we'd have beat down, right? And isn't it amazing, though, how Christians talk about the bride of Christ? Yeah. All right, come on. So if nothing else, let's just, let's just realize we need each other. We need to yoke ourselves to inconvenience. We need to yoke ourselves to imperfect churches. There's no way we can fight sin without each other. You need a church, whether it's this one or some other Bible-believing church. And then you need to, we need to serve that church, and we need to find people that we can serve, and we need, like, we don't do that great. We don't. We don't. And that's not, I'm not like, this is not me scolding you. I'm just saying, it's hard, man. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And I think part of what this text is calling us to do is just, like, all of us to resolve to, to, to fight to do that in a, in a, in a, in a more earnest way. And that's, that's a big part of the Christian life. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters and friends that are here tonight. I, I love them dearly. I pray that you'd give us a good rest of the week as we trust and rest in your grace. I pray for our Good Friday service that maybe unbelievers might come and hear about the work of Christ. I pray in particular for this Sunday when there will likely be more unbelievers present than on a normal Sunday and that by your sovereign grace, the Spirit of God might blow through this building like a mighty rushing wind and call dead Lazaruses up from the tomb. And that you'd give them life and faith and repentance and they would follow you. And for those of us, all of us that suffer from gospel amnesia, for those of us that are already Christians, Lord, refresh our souls in the gospel this Resurrection Sunday. And go with my friends and my brothers and sisters as we go home tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.